Yes, so um, to begin our discussion on impermanence, I want to um, sing with you the Buddhist impermanence chant. many things here. There we go. A um, couple things about this version of this chant. So the Pali, I, most of you may know, but just to say Pali is the language that um, the when Buddhist Buddhist teachings were transmitted orally for many hundreds of years, and when they were first written down, they were written down in stone tablets in Pali. Pali is not a spoken language, but it was it resembles the language that was spoken in North India at the time of the Buddha's life. So this is a transliteration of the Pali, and it's not if you're familiar with this chant or others. This is not the normal transliteration you'll see. This is mine, um, so that it so that it's easy easier for me at least to chant it the way it's actually verbally chanted. The way that the transliteration is done is with uh, letters that don't actually represent the sound, so that can be confusing. So we'll do the Pali twice and the English twice. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is that this last line actually translate as brings the highest happiness. Sukho means happiness. And I have it translated here as brings peace. In Buddhism, peace is understood to be the highest happiness. So I, when I made this translation, I, I contacted Gil Fronstal, who's a Buddhist scholar, and I said, is that okay to translate desam pasamosuko to brings peace? And he said, yes. So I feel okay about it. So, um, so yeah, let's do this together. Anicca vata sangara Upadavaya damino Upachitva niruchanti Desam upasamo sukho Anichavanta sankara Upadavaya damino Upachitva Tua niruchanti desamu pasamo suko. All things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away to be in harmony with this truth. are impermanent they arise and they pass away to be in harmony with this truth bring 
which we are capable of observing. So at sort of the conventional level of um, noticing change, we can see it. We don't need any, we don't need any special mindfulness practice to see that things change. Um, but even at this level where we, you know, you know, we're just among our fellow humans, we're not we're not talking about any particular Buddhist practice or mindfulness practice or anything else, and we can all see that change is true. We still have a tendency to deny it. And denying the truth of change doesn't ultimately serve us because um, we're not in we're not in harmony with reality, the truth. And we can really hurt ourselves with our um, wrong views, our our confusion, our beliefs that um, cause us to assume that things are permanent when they're not. Um, whereas coming into ease or comfort with the truth of change can allow can allow the mind and us to relax and kind of go with the flow. So I want to talk about impermanence from a couple of different views, beginning with the view that we, we all know is true, which is that we each have a lifespan and we don't know how long that lifespan will be, but every human being like everything else, um, comes into being, is born, we each have some length of time that we're here, and then we die. And I uh, want to talk about that for a little bit first, sort of as a way in. So um, if you live in the Bay Area, you may be familiar with the Mountain View Cemetery um, in Oakland, up at the top of Piedmont Avenue. And I live in Berkeley and my friend Chaya lives in Oakland and my grandfather is buried in the Mountain View Cemetery and her parents are buried in the Mountain View Cemetery. But even before they died, we've been um, walking at that cemetery for years and years. We meet there and walk. And it's a great place to walk. It's hilly and it's it's got big old trees and big swaths of grass. It's, beautiful. But it's also filled to the brim, of course, with tombstones. And so lots of people don't want to walk there for that reason. Um, tombstones, some of them go back 200 years. Is that right? 150 years. Um, so some people find it disconcerting, but Hi and I both love walking there. We love, we both, she's a rabbi, and I've been on a spiritual path in Buddhism for 30 years. 
And we both love to be in the presence of the truth of impermanence. It's provocative, it's poignant, it's heart opening. And um, yeah, it's meaningful. And we love the reminder to reflect on our own lives. Um, both of us hoping and wanting to be a service while we're here. And I know staying cognizant of death can be um, an acquired taste. There's a couple of reasons why it can be useful to contemplate and why in Buddhism, it's actually one of the specific practices in the Satipatthana Sutta in the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, there's a whole piece of that teaching about being aware of uh, death and dying. Um, so it's helpful to be just, as I said before, in touch with things that are true so that we're not um, shocked or uh, we don't take offense, and also so that we can let go of attachment, particularly to our bodies. If we want our bodies to be a certain way or expect them to be a certain way, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because bodies change. Uh, we all have bodies that have changed. Um, really always startled. I was an elementary school music teacher for 25 years. And so I have students who are in their 30s and even 40s now. And um, it's like every one of those people, I can remember them clearly when they were five years old. And it's startling. You know, we become different people, our bodies become different, our minds, everything, but certainly bodies change and continue to change. So when we expect bodies to stay the same and then they don't, um, we suffer. We can extend some things, but um, we can't create unending permanence. Everything has an arc of becoming, being here, and then going. So staying aware of impermanence because it's simply true. And another reason to stay aware of impermanence is that this awareness can have a very positive effect on our choices and actions. And when I recall impermanence, I feel a sense of urgency to acknowledge my own deepest values. What are they? What matters? Life is short. And I can ask you the same question. What matters to you? Remembering impermanence might encourage you to take steps in that direction. And sometimes recalling impermanence positively impacts relationships. I know when 
I have held resentments and then withdrawn as a result of those resentments and then reflected on the shortness of my life and the life of the other person that has sometimes propelled me into connection, communication, reconciliation. Or if my life has become too full, too busy, I've been prioritizing the doing and the earning and the productivity over relationships. And I really think about what matters to me and what's going to matter to me on my deathbed. I'm willing to put down the endless to-do list and reach out and be in connection. Very often that awareness of impermanence can allow me to be more patient, more present, and uh, less kind of enthralled by the conditions of living in this particular culture, which involve a lot of busyness. And what I find is, and I'm sure you can understand this or relate to this, is that when I do reflect on impermanence and that motivates me to reconnect with the people that I love or, or reach out more, even to people that I am just in community with or, or in, encountering in daily life, my well-being is enhanced. So using this impermanence as a motivation for relationships um, feels good. Motivating connection and generosity. So I want to share with you part of an article recently published in the New Yorker magazine title of Photographer's Parents Wave Farewell by Aaron Orbe. I'm just going to read you part of this. Deanna Dykeman's parents sold her childhood home in Sioux City, Iowa in 1990 when they were in their early 70s. They moved to a bright red ranch house in the same town, which they filled with all their old furniture. At the end of their daughter's visits, Like countless other mothers and fathers in the suburbs, Dykeman's parents would stand outside the house to send her off while she got in her car and drove away. One day in 1991, she thought to photograph them in this pose, moved by a mounting awareness that the peaceful years would not last forever. Dykeman's mother wore indigo shorts and a bright pink blouse that morning. Her father, in beige slacks lingered behind her on the lawn in ragged shade in the ragged shade of a maple tree the image shows their arms rising together in a farewell wave for more than 20 years during every departure thereafter dykeman photographed her parents at the same moment rolling down her car window and aiming her lens towards their home in leaving and waving a portrait series that doubles as a family album Dykeman compresses nearly three decades of these adieu into a deft and affecting chronology. 
Each image reiterates the quiet loyalty of her parents' tradition. They recede into the warm glow of the garage on rainy evenings and laugh under the eaves in better weather. In summer, they blow kisses from the driveway. In winter, they wear scarves and stand behind snowbanks. Inevitably, they age. Dykeman's father died first, late in 2009, having appeared in the series for the last time that August. In his final image, he rests one hand on the grip of a quad cane and waves with the other, bracing himself between a car bumper and his wife's side. Afterwards, Dykeman photographed her mother outside the house, sometimes accompanied by relatives, until 2017 when her mother relocated to a retirement facility. She kept waving for the camera as old age crimped her fingers. Later that year, she died in her sleep. So, Deanna Dykeman was alert to impermanence. And because of that, she documented 20 years of her parents, 20, almost 30 years of her parents' goodbyes through her photography, which she was seeing and honoring them honoring her own creative expression, you know, what, what mattered to her, and allowing herself to feel the poignancy of change. There is a phrase from the Buddhist teachings, what is subject to old age grows old, and I am not exempt. What is subject to illness grows ill, and I am not exempt. What is subject to death dies, and I am not exempt. And so as these things happen to our bodies or the bodies of our loved ones, understanding that there's no mistakes, there's no one's fault, there's no Nothing we could have done differently. It's just the nature of this existence that everything changes. And when we really, you know, remember that chant we sang in the beginning, um, to be in harmony with this truth brings peace. When we really make peace with this truth, a law of impermanence, there can be a kind of a relaxing, a letting go, an allowing. This poem is called If You Knew, it's by Ellen Bass. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt they just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, 
joked as he served the coffee, kissed his aunt, her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? So as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, impermanence happens on whatever level we're perceiving. And one of the big reasons that we cultivate mindfulness, this beautiful capacity to see what's happening in the actual lived moment, is to see impermanence at finer and finer levels of perception. When we're, when we're mindful, we're seeing what's actually going on, so we're not lost in the story of thought. We're here. Thought is part of what's here, but it's not all of what's here. There's also the five other senses giving a lot of information all the time. So we're here with these six, what in Buddhism are called the six sense doors, the five senses plus the thinking mind, giving us this information. Mindfulness is like a, a light in the room allowing us to see what's here. And as we become, as the mindfulness gets stronger and the concentration gets stronger, we can begin to see things are changing all the time. There, so it happens at the level of a human life, which is what we've been discussing. Then even on a grander level, it happens on the level of mountains and stars and galaxies. Things arise, they endure for some time, and then they pass away. And then we go the other direction, down in, and we use our mindfulness to see a moment like this one. I think of moments like beads on a string. And it, depending on how focused the mindfulness is, the beads are tinier and tinier. Just whatever we perceive until, it, until it's possible to really see things just flickering so quickly that really there is nothing solid. It's all moving, it's all flowing like a river all the time. Constant change. And so the letting go that we're talking about it, when we're talking about the lifespan of a human being is a profound and that's a, it really supports awakening just to spend time with that. And as we continue to cultivate our mindfulness, and we're with changing phenomena in each moment. It's really helpful. So in other words, impermanence really leaves the conceptual and comes into the experiential uh, aspect of mind. Like, like mind knows, it's seen for itself. Things are changing all the time. And when it's seen that for itself, it lets go. Attachment, which is the primary source of suffering, clinging. We don't cling to things as much. Greed and hatred are, are just way dialed down because there's not a reason to grab onto things or push things away. They're already changing all the time anyway. And what mindfulness is doing 
is giving us this capacity. It's like the flashlight that helps us investigate. So mindfulness helps us see, and then investigation creates the wisdom factor. Wisdom just meaning knowing what's true. The thing about impermanence is that we can see it at any level. Like I was saying, we don't have to wait until we've cultivated a depthful mindfulness practice. We can see it up here right where we are. And bringing awareness there at that level is also very powerful. The relief, the peace that comes from letting go, riding the waves, is really, it really changes things. Buddhist teacher Joseph Goldstein talks about what he calls NPMs, NPMs, noticings per minute. We're in a already practicing mindfulness, might be able to notice 10 things in a minute, which is a lot. And then if you're, if you're, you know, having a time where things are still and focused and you're able to really cultivate like when on retreat or in your own practice, sometimes it can be get up to, wow, things are changing all the time. Like if you, if you just move your hand open and shut your hand with mindfulness, so many different little mini moments in that and and eventually you know with practice the whole concept of hand and just fall away and there's just there's what's being seen color and form and then there's all these different little moments well there's all these little different moments in what's being seen and then there's all these different little moments in what's being felt physical sensation and presence can just be with that and let go of the concept of hand. There's this wonderful poem called A Hand, written back in 1953 by Jane Hirschfield that kind of captures this, like running through, not so much, doesn't so much capture the NPMs, the little tiny moments within each apparently larger moment, the truth of impermanence way down to the smallest thing um but also um just like the different ways the mind can hold an experience so this is a hand a hand is not four fingers and a thumb nor is it a palm and knuckles not ligaments or the fat's yellow pillow not tendons star of the wrist bone, meander of veins. A hand is not the thick thatch of its lines with their infinite dramas, nor what it has written, not on the page, not on the ecstatic body. Nor is the hand its meadows of holding, of shaping, not sponge of rinsing yeast bread, nor rotor pin smoothness, 
not ink. The maple's green hands do not cup the proliferant rain. What empties itself falls into the place that is open. A hand turned upward holds only a single transparent question. Unanswerable, humming like bees, it rises, swarms, and departs. I know you can probably hear my dog barking in the other room. <laughs> Things arise and pass away. So there's an incredible, let me see if I can do something about the sound. Just a second. Oh, okay. No. Um, there's an incredible poignancy in really, really allowing ourselves to take in impermanence. We're moved to more deeply take in the moments, even as they're going. So savoring becomes a tender activity of the wisdom of impermanence. Just savoring even the neutral moments. These are the shapes, these are the colors, this is the bead on the string as it's going by. And each bead a moment of our lives. Mindfulness allows us to not only notice impermanence, but to be fully present for the moments of our lives. There's a Zen story, uh, a man walking across a field encounters a tiger. Some of you have heard this. So he flees the tiger who chases after him. Coming to a cliff, catches hold. The man catches hold of a wild vine and swings himself over the edge. And the tiger is sniffing at him from above. And he's terrified and he looks down below and there's another tiger down below. And then he looks and then there it turns out there's a mouse chewing on the vine, gnawing away at the vine. And the man sees a luscious strawberry near him. So grasping the vine in one hand, he reaches out and plucks the strawberry and eats it. And how sweet it tastes. That's the end of the story. Each moment is like this story. Each moment is here and then gone. And we can miss it, which we mostly do because of the way we get lost in thought. Or we can be here for it and savor it like the man savors the strawberry. Which brings, again, it brings uh, compassion, loving kindness, letting go, all of these qualities that support the proximate causes for peace. The reason why the study of impermanence brings peace. 
So I'm going to close with just a couple more readings. This is a, a poem from Dana Falls called Joy for No Reason. Kind of speaks to the savoring aspect of being present for these little moments or big moments, whatever moments we're present for. I am filled with quiet joy for no reason save the fact that I'm alive. The message I receive is clear. There's no time to lose from loving. No place but here to offer kindness. No day but this to be my true unfettered self and pass the flame from heart to heart. This is the only moment that exists. So simple, so exquisite, and so real. And then this is just a little thing I saved. I don't even know where I got this from. I don't remember what talk this came from or when. This is a little message from Jack Cornfield. <laughs> he said, amidst the changes, shine with courage and trust. Love people. This is your world. Plant seeds of goodness and water them everywhere. Then blessings will grow for yourself and for all. All right. So, um, any reflections from you? Any questions? Any thoughts? Noticings? Love to hear from you. John. In the story of the daughter taking pictures of her parents and you know, the story of impermanence, I was, the other thing I'm, I'm impressed with is the, the steadfastness of the love through the years. Mm -hmm. And so how there's just all this, this, this quality of steadfastness amidst the constant change. Um, yeah. What can you, how does that fit together, steadfastness and impermanence? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, everything has a lifespan, but the lifespan of things are, are of different lengths. So like a mountain has a lifespan and a human has a lifespan and a, a ladybug has a lifespan. So of different lengths, right? And so does something like love. And having said that, I want to tell you that there's a wonderful quote from Neem Karoli Baba, who is a great non-dual teacher in India, one of James Barris's teachers, a great quote that, and now you have to take the word God with a grain of salt, everybody just interpret it however it works for you, right? But his great quote, I think, is um, everything is impermanent except the love of God. Meaning that there is this radiance 
there is this, there is, there is something wonderful, but it's not anything in um, material, in the material world. But the human heart can tap into that. So, uh, you know, I think there's different responses. I think sort of the, 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 the um, Theravadan response to that is like the first thing I said, which is that love too has a lifespan. And then there's also this understanding, particularly from the Mahayana tradition, um, and we each find our own way with this, but um, of Buddha nature, bodhicitta, the awakened heart. Um, and bodhicitta is a word in Pali. I mean, it's it's part of Theravadan too, but there's some deep abiding love that's there and available. Yeah. Thanks for the question, John. Anybody else? Any thoughts or questions about any of this? Yes, um, Ben. Yeah, hi there. For many, many people, they have a, a fear of death and contemplating this is not something they, they go out of their way to do. I think I saw a quote from Bill Gates. who said, I try not to think about death too often. It just depresses me. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a cycle where in the early days of thinking about impermanence, it's a scary concept and it takes a while to go around the circle to actually find peace in it. Curious your reflections or reactions to sort of like the thinking about impermanence for just one day or one week or one month, or maybe even one year, you're still in sort of the fear zone or the denial zone. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of concept that if you're not committed to spend a lot of time going deep in it, you might only experience the fear and not the peace. Yeah, absolutely. Accurate observation. And I like, I really, first of all, in general, you know, like, like the Bill Gates quote, but also that that there's a there's a movement where unfortunately the first piece of it can be scary and people can stay in that place yeah yeah um you know when I first encountered these teachings, I was pushed right into the deep end, you know, and so that's kind of how I teach it too, you know, um, it was like, you know, newbie meditator and uh, like I was saying that the first, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, mindfulness of body and just like you know, people are in some, you know, graveyards contemplating corpses and here's the teachings and think about that, you know. Um, and just because of my nature, that actually worked for me. But I know that it doesn't work for everybody. And as I teach him, as I've taught impermanence, when somebody pull, has a fear response, which is very natural, um, I just, I just, reel it back and trust people to have their own process about it. But I don't, I don't think there's a softer way. I think, you know, you know, it's maybe it can be easier maybe to observe impermanence, like in the rise and fall of breath. 
or in a step and another step because it's not so hard to let go of a breath and when you know you have another one coming. Um, but ultimately it leads leads back to the inevitability of loss and the teachings that everything dear to us will be lost to us. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's a good point. I think you can, like on one retreat, I was once on the member of the teacher instructing to notice the impermanence of an itch on your yeah. arm. And that's not a scary yeah. thing to contemplate. Um, yeah. The idea that everything you love and that you hold dear is impermanent. That's a, a much harder uh, truth to grapple, but it's an interesting concept. Maybe some people are better suited to start in the shallow end of the pool and other people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I really appreciate you bringing that up. I think it's a really important thing to think about um, in terms of like how to introduce different kinds of people to the concept. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah. Zach. Thank you, Eve. I always love hearing about this topic. It's, uh, you know, something I work with a lot and sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes impermanence can mean that suffering becomes joy and sometimes it means impermanence of life. Um, yeah. Can you repeat uh, the name of, of the first poem or and the author um, that you read? Yeah. Uh, the poem is called... Go. If you knew, and the author is Ellen Bass, B A S S. Yeah. Thank you. And Zach, that's right. Also, what you said about um, impermanence can mean suffering turning to joy. Impermanence means creativity. Impermanence means flowers blooming. Yeah. It's loss, but it's also birth. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Any other thoughts? How's this landing for you? Okay, well, I um, recall at the beginning of the talk, I was, I was speaking about walking with my friend Haya in the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. And um, I have a song about that. So I'm going to sing it for you. Um, I've sung it recently here, but it's right on the topic. So we'll, we'll do this. Okay. Cemetery 
It's so beautiful there in the spring Buttercups are blooming every place And the grass is thick and green I appreciate the company of the dead I heard it was Don Juan who said Keep death upon your shoulder It will remind you to love Sitting quiet with my heart Thought welled up in me one day What if someone drops a bomb Have I said all I must say No, my heart cried out to me It really must be said I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you I like walking in the cemetery It's so beautiful there in the summer I throw a frisbee with a friend And we look at the sky in wonder I appreciate the company of the dead Don Juan who said Keep death upon your shoulder It will remind you to love Complacent ice Hard and cold Protection from the fear But like the sun that melts A thought that helps Is that soon none of us will be here Am I ready for the time when the one I take for granted is dying? Remembering, I hold her hand and whisper thanks for this moment we're sharing. I like walking in the cemetery, it's so beautiful there in the fall. The changing leaves fall from the trees like they do from a song. I appreciate the company of the dead. I went and read the page where Don Juan said, Keep death upon your shoulder, it will remind you to love. Considering the folks I've heard. While struggling to be happy I hope you'll find it in you To forgive me And as far as I'm concerned When I reflect upon the ending All will be forgiven The strongest feeling is love
Thank you. So if there are any more questions or comments, they're welcome. Otherwise, we will do our dedication of merit. Okay. All right. So dedication of merit is also sung, but um, in case anybody's new, dedication means generosity, which is this beautiful quality that we cultivate, um, connective and deeply wise, caring energy. And merit means goodness. So any goodness that we have or that we have, you know, deepened by being together tonight to practice mindfulness and these teachings and permanence and so forth. We offer for the from a place of generosity for the benefit of all beings everywhere with the hope and wish that all beings could be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. world of pain turns into paradise. 